0: You're listening to Why We Do What We Do. All right, welcome to Why We Do What We Do. I will be your host, Abraham. And I will be your co-host, Shane. And so today we are going to pick up our conversation that we were having about syphilis. So I do want to just be upfront here that we originally recorded this as one long episode. It went way longer than what we were originally expecting and way longer than we usually have one of our episodes be for most of the time. So we decided to go ahead and just split it up after we had already recorded it. So we are going to be jumping into part of the conversation that might be kind of jarring so we'll we'll play little music so that you know that that's what's happening. So just as a recap for last time, we talked about just describing what syphilis is. We mentioned several times that it's not itchy and we will continue to talk about that. (laughs) We went over the stages of syphilis, the causes of syphilis, diagnosing syphilis and some prevention around syphilis. And so that's, that's more or less where we left off. And in this episode, we'll be talking more about some of the history, the treatment, busting some myths and talking about a behavioral approach to safe practices around syphilis
1: in traditional shane braham fashion we kind of get on some (laughs) tangents and we do our thing and we always kind of talk about how when we set up an episode even when we have show notes we definitely go off script a lot and what ends up happening is our conversations are we try to make them as authentic as possible and as real as possible and then here we are with a two-part series that was originally designed as one part i would also like to point out too and a huge shout to our note contributor or organizer i what do we what do we call him let's call him a researcher researcher that's way better that's actually more in line with what we're doing anyway so our researcher for this one alan kinsella has been really great with setting up these really great notes they tend to be very detailed and so add that to the conversation with abraham and i it's going to lead to like three or four part episodes so we're going to try to really quell that as much as we can but hopefully you all dig this episode a researcher and writer, I think,
0: is maybe another title to bestow upon him. Yeah, I agree. He did a fantastic job. Definitely deserves the shout out. And this was a really fun episode to record and the beginning. And like I said, I think if you haven't heard that part yet, I definitely recommend going back and listening to that because that sets up a lot of the conversation that we have in the second part. But we'll prob- we're going to jump right in. You'll hear me talking about how we could try and create better awareness around syphilis and things to do about it. Anything else before we transition to, to this episode?
1: I think the same PSA is kind of apply here.
0: Oh, good point.
1: So, you know, we are going to talk about some things that are medically gross and maybe uncomfortable. We are going to talk about some sex stuff. And in the second part, we do talk about the Tuskegee experiments that occur, which is a pretty intense and pretty inhumane thing. And it can be kind of shocking and disturbing when you hear it. We are going to do more on that later, but we just want to kind of prepare you all for that because it is it can be a very uncomfortable topic.
0: Yeah, racial conversation, sexual conversation, sexual orientation, conversation, all kinds of stuff coming up. So all the makings of a great episode, really, if you think about loaded, it. Loaded. Loaded. Fully loaded. <laughs> Not the
1: Charlie's Angels movie. Or is it? Just kidding. <laughs> dun, dun dun That's that's a surprise. We're not talking about syphilis. We're talking about McGee's <laughs> Charlie's Angels movies. All right.
0: So, without further ado, please enjoy the remainder of this conversation and everything there is to learn about syphilis. Have fun. You know, what we need to do is get like the advertising teams for some of the beer companies to help develop ads for some of these like public health campaigns because. The- I feel like they're the ones that tend to have the funniest, most culturally impactful ads. Oh, yeah. And which is ridiculous by itself. But, you know, maybe we we tap into the like the Budweiser market for syphilis campaigns.
1: Yeah, or like even like Old Spice or Geico, like any of those where it's like it sticks in your head and you're like, you know exactly what it is and what they're talking about, even though it's the most bizarre commercial. Like, let's get them on this. Like, we need better people.
0: All these brands are probably upset with us for associating them with syphilis
1: right now. (laughs) Sorry, Geico. Not sorry, Old Spice. (laughs) Got him. That's the hill that we're dying on today. It's like we're taking down Old Spice. Big deodorant. (laughs) (laughs) We're gonna get really into like really in the weeds about this in our podcast later. Like as we get older and we get more disgruntled, you're gonna find out that we're anti big deodorant, anti big <laughs> I don't know, soda. Big soda, yeah. Exactly. Big barrel. Big, big yeah, yeah sorry, I was just talking the other
0: day about like how expensive barrels are to like get like a real wooden barrel made by like a Cooper. And so it's like it's that big barrel there that's driving the is. prices.
1: That's it. Capitalism, man. <laughs>
0: Okay. Speaking of Big Barrel, let's talk about congenital prevention. (laughs) There's no other way to go into that. (laughs) Of course, as we've mentioned, early screening is extremely important in the US. Preventative Services Task Force recommends screening of all pregnant women. Just to be sure, even if you don't have symptoms, even if you don't have reason to believe it, may as well just run 100% of people through that filtering test so that they can take steps early to try and prepare for what might happen. The World Health Organization suggests both first and third trimester screening. First does seem early. I wonder if you'd be able to catch it then. I mean, I guess if they're recommending it, you would, but that seems really early.
1: I think it's just one of those things like if it is something that you do have early on, like I wonder if it, it might be transmissible and maybe it impacts the embryo. I'm not sure. But what you see, though, within this, like we talk about this like prevention component is that developing countries will see more of this because a lack of screening and care throughout pregnancy occurs. Right. So where a country may not have the medical care that's available, they may not have the necessary treatments or the screenings that are that are available. You might see congenital transmission a little bit more in those areas.
0: Another way that I think of it is important to relate this to psychology and how to prepare for setting up systems in place for this to work and thinking about what kind of processes can we put in place to try and increase people's contact and engagement with this. And that is a psychological question. How do we affect people's behavior in such a way that they are making the safest possible choice and that we're having them seek out treatment, counseling, and guidance? And the CDC has recommendations specifically for healthcare providers. And so this is what we would call something that's like on the antecedent end, which is what is something we can do at the, thinking of triage, like the most Basic level of service delivery, how can we prevent and reduce the spread of infection and catching early signs and that sort of thing? And so, one of those things that we can do is to recommend that healthcare providers talk openly with patients, such as about sexually transmitted disease counseling.
1: Yeah, another one too is we, and we kind of mentioned this already, is testing all pregnant women repeatedly. Well, testing all pregnant women in general, but being able to test those repeatedly that are in either high risk area or a high risk population. And to
0: treat immediately if there is a positive test and also to treat partners and trying to avoid any reinfection that might occur, because let's just say you have a couple and one person tests positive for having syphilis and you treat that syphilis. Well, if they had already given it to their partner or maybe even got it from the partner in the first place, then that person who had it treated could get reinfected because the other person that they're having sexual contact with is not being treated. So by identifying that and making treatment on both sides, you're able to prevent or hopefully prevent the likelihood of getting treated and then reinfected again.
1: Right, right. Absolutely. And then another one, too, they talk about is this idea of confirming with a test at the delivery when the baby is delivered, especially testing mothers if a stillbirth occurs, because that might be a result or an effect of having the disease. So being able to test right away so that you can prevent the spread of the disease at that moment.
0: And of course, it's really important to report all cases to the health department immediately so that they, there can be be a documented sort of paper trail that helps keep track of this. And one thing I guess I, I do want to point out here is I totally understand that it seems like having yourself on record for this sort of thing can feel like you're having your privacy invaded because you have a bunch of people keeping track of your health that's and like being reported. And there might be a more than a few people who are aware that you are the one who has this. And while I understand that, like, that you certainly should have a right to that kind of privacy, what becomes tricky is when other people might then become at risk of contacting that disease. And so it is incumbent upon the healthcare, the health field, the healthcare field to put systems in place to prevent any exploitation or any leakage of that information. And it is incumbent upon the people who have that disease to be as safe as possible to avoid further transmission. So, like, let's protect people's privacy let's put safeguards in place to ensure that they can't be exploited let's also make them feel safe and comfortable with that process and then try and avoid other people getting infected
1: right and i think another thing too and and this is something that's a theme that i see a lot when whenever it comes to any sort of like stds or stis that people get embarrassed that they have it and i think that's something that kind of like You know, understandably it's not the best thing. It's not easy to admit that that's something that happened, but I think it's important to kind of recognize that a little bit of embarrassment is maybe necessary to get treated versus not getting treated and losing your eyesight or having a stroke because you were afraid to like discuss that you even had it. So there's gotta be kind of this space where we gotta destigmatize it. It's like getting a cold. It's like getting sick. It's something that needs treatment and it's okay. It's not gonna last you the rest of your life if you can get treated for it, or you can get the proper care so that you can still live a quality life going forward speaking of treatment Ta-ha! all you
0: have to do is rub a little old spice on it and it'll go away
1: ah thanks old spice <laughs> if you go to the old spice website at oldspice.com slash wwd wwd and enter the code body spray you get 20 percent off <laughs> enter the code syphilis <laughs> totally kidding
0: on all of that yeah we don't have a sponsorship and old spice will not treat it it's a single dose of penicillin you can also use doxycycline and tetracycline as backups And it is recommended to not have sex until the lesions heal.
1: So when it comes to late infections like neurosyphilis, IV penicillin in large doses for a minimum of 10 days tends to be the main treatment or the effective treatment. More on various schedules, though, might be required depending on the level of infection. So this treatment actually limits spreading rather than repairing the damage already done. So it's basically going to like kind of put a stop to the disease making it worse, but it's not going to make... Any of that damage that occurred, it's not going to go back and fix what happened. If you have neurological damage, it's not going to go back and repair any of that.
0: And don't confuse IV penicillin with four penicillin with the Roman numerals. That's not what IV means in this case.
1: Yeah, I did the same thing. I was like, a four penicillin. I was like, wait, 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 wait. that's not, that's not correct.
0: (laughs) Intravenous penicillin, not the Led Zeppelin album. I think it was Led Zeppelin,
1: right? (laughs) Yeah, 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 yeah. Great. (laughs) The circle jerks were VI, so that was a different album. Got it, okay. So
0: are you ready for a whole bunch of numbers and statistics? Let's do this. Okay, we're going to blast through this. And if we need to stop on something, we will. But otherwise, I think we can just put these numbers in your head and then you can come back to this part if you want to or forget them all together because maybe some people are into it. (laughs) Whatever. In 2012, 0.5% of adults were infected. There were 6 million new cases. In 1999, there were 12 million new cases and 90% of which were in the developing world. And so syphilis was the reason for 20% of perinatal deaths.
1: This disease actually affects 700,000 to 1.6 million pregnancies per year, resulting in birth defects and issues.
0: According to the CDC, there was a 14.4% increase in syphilis cases between 2017 and 2018.
1: 86% of primary and secondary cases are men, and 78% of those are among those who identify as homosexual.
0: Or at least are engaging in some kind of same-sex relation. Right. There's a 185% increase between 2014 and 2018 of congenital diagnoses of syphilis.
1: That's a wild number. Yeah, that's an unfortunate increase. That's kind of the crazy thing about that. That happened in four years. Yeah. All right. So the CDC also notes there's higher rates in intravenous drug users and male-to-male relationships or sexual intercourse. In the
0: United States, there are approximately 55,400 new cases each year. And by 2020, rates will have increased threefold is the estimate. Hey, that's this year.
1: Oh, yeah. Well, of course it's this year. Why would it be any other year but this year? Yeah, basically. It's on brand. It's on the 2020 brand. Although that being said,
0: with as many closures and shutdowns as there's been, perhaps there was, there's going to be less of a decreases, um, except maybe in like Florida and Arizona and Texas.
1: Yeah. And maybe Australia. I don't know. (laughs) And maybe Australia. So... (laughs) 86% 86% of these cases were men, according to a 2018 statistic. And in 2010, half of the cases were African-American, which is actually going to be an important point that we make in a little bit.
0: Yeah, we'll speak to that a little bit. Not actually specifically the half of the cases part, but we'll speak about the relation to the African-American population. Syphilis was rampant through the 19th century in Egypt and decreased in the 80s and 90s in developed nations due to access to antibiotics.
1: Yep. And since 2000, it's been increasing in the US, Canada, UK, Australia, and primarily among male-to-male contact, like sexual contact. And women have actually remained stable. That demographic has been stable. But in China and Russia, it increased due to promiscuity and prostitution issues that were occurring in those countries. Side
0: note, in places where prostitution is legal, there is frequent testing and use of protection, and so they are constantly monitoring the health and well-being of the sex workers, and so it is less likely to spread. Just food for thought.
1: Oh, yeah. We should probably do a whole
0: episode on prostitution and sex work. Oh, yeah. Syphilis food for thought, but just kidding. (laughs) Hot cup of syphilis making a return. Oh, God. Thanks, Starbucks. (laughs) Oh, my God. I just lost all future potential for Starbucks <laughs> sponsorship <laughs> going to the mortality rate. If left untreated, 8 to 58% of cases
1: will be fatal. And this is greater among males. Right. And uh, there's an increased risk of HIV transmission by 2 to 5 times if if somebody does actually have syphilis as well.
0: Okay. Now we start to get into the Ickier part of if this wasn't icky enough, then I think we're going to get into the ickier part of this, which is the history of some syphilis and what we know about it ready for this let's do it okay gotta get my stretch in because taking on this awfulness all right so (laughs) the existence of syphilis was disputed in the americas prior to and after the voyage of columbus and the first recorded instance was in europe around 1494 in naples this has had a minute to be
1: around and spread and persist of course Christopher Columbus had to come up in this discussion. Yeah, I mean especially when you're talking about diseases. Yeah. He's the guy. <laughs> he was the courier. So so when we talk about this idea of the first recorded instances, it occurred during a French invasion and they actually dubbed the disease the French disease, which is just on brand with conquering white nations calling diseases some other country's disease and like really making it like a real issue. That is the worst thing that somebody can do. Also reminds me of like
0: when we talked about French kissing. So we discussed on kissing and how that was like just to slander the French and had nothing to do with specific kissing practices. Poor France. Poor France.
1: And so it's kind of like right now where like certain members of a certain political party and administration are calling the COVID issue, the Chinese virus or the Kung flu, which is awful. Don't do that. Super racist. Not a great thing. Call it by the disease. Call it by what it is.
0: Right. And there's an important discussion to be had around why we don't call diseases after locations. And it is not so simple as it came from that place, which is often we don't know where it came from. So that's one reason not to. Um, But it also has a lot of side effects that spread out beyond that. And I was actually thinking, I wonder if it would make sense to put this inside of a discussion around just the effect that names can have on things and doing just a whole episode on that. Because like there are certain species that just by changing the name of the animal species, it stopped being hunted to extinction And like how much power there can be in in the names of things, because sometimes things sound cute or they sound like they're denigrating, and whatever it is, calling it by something can have very serious impacts. And so that's why there's a reason to be mindful of what you call things, especially when it's something that is a disease, because the spread of those can be so insidious and in syphilis. Now, where did this name syphilis come from? Do you expect Columbus to be walking around calling this like? It's a me, a CFLs. But no, this was coined by or given the name by physician and poet, Gerolamo Fracas Toro. Boy, I butchered that name. I'm so sorry. It was after the name of a character and describing the effects of a disease.
1: Huh. All right. So now you kind of know where the name comes from. Now, during the 16th and 19th centuries, it was a huge public burden and people started fearing STDs. And so, you know... Part of that is in that time people didn't really know much about the the kind of where it came from, but the exact causative agent was unknown during this time, but known to be transmitted sexually and by birth and that at the time the damage was less great sickness early on, but rather a delayed effect that transitioned into neurosyphilis later, which made it even scarier, right? So now you've got something that they know is transmitted sexually, they know it's transmitted via birth, and they know that there's immediate effects, but they don't know about the long-term effects until much later, because remember, we talked about that tertiary period and those latent periods, right? Those stages where you're asymptomatic for a little bit.
0: Right, so it almost looks like you just got a separate disease altogether, after you'd had some other disease, it's just like, "Ah, oh, I'm just sick all the time. <laughs> anyway, if you can imagine early treatments were not very good. People were trying mercury compounds and an isolation, which were often even worse than the disease itself. Unfortunately, with some of the availability that has been made to people who are sort of hucksters and shysters and con artists, there are things like this that are still around and are coming back. So, Colloidal silver is one that people use, which is extremely toxic and terrible for you. And mercury is also bad for you. But we unfortunately have not really learned our lesson from this, but we kind of have because we've come up with effective treatments. They just live, these ones still exist, just more on the fringe.
1: What's important about this, though, is like talking about those treatments. You know, in order to treat something, you kind of have to know where it comes from and what it is. So in 1905, the first identification of the organism, Treponema pallidum, that's when we actually discovered that really cool word. And then the first treatment for it came out in 1909, which was arsphenamine.
0: Yes, that looks right to me. Yeah. Or sounds right, I mean. Anyway, in 1928, penicillin was discovered to be an effective treatment for syphilis. In 1932 to 1972, we get into the Tuskegee study of untreated syphilis in the Negro male, the infamous study of U.S. Public Health Service. Okay. Ready to do this? Yeah, let's do it. We discussed this before the episode and decided that we are going to come back around and do another full deep dive on the Tuskegee experiment, so we'll do just a brief overview here. We also talked about this a little bit in the episode that we did, talking about the ethics of and the ethics as a part of psychology research, so you can go back and hear it there, although it was, again, a pretty brief mention, so this will be fairly similar, but still a good episode to revisit. Yeah. But anyway... This will be a deep dive later on, but here is the gist of what happened. There were 600 participants enrolled in the study. These were all African-American men. So 399 of them were infected with syphilis and 201 of them were uninfected. And they were told that they were receiving treatment for bad blood from the government. So this was free. So there's a little bit of coercion there potentially, but they weren't actually being treated. Instead, they were being observed for the long-term effects of untreated syphilis. And for their participation, they received medical care, hot meals, and burial insurance. So
1: very generous. Being sarcastic. If you ever sign up for a study and part of it is that you get burial insurance, maybe don't do that study fair point actually to me that is the red flag now keep in mind this was supposed to be for six months this was supposed to be a six-month study six months treatment but it lasted for 40 years just as a reminder we talked about this experiment lasting from 1932 four years after penicillin was discovered and discovered to be an effective treatment for syphilis through 1972
0: right so initially like we didn't have a super effective treatment and so I think if there had been clear communication with them saying, like, we want to observe what happens since we don't know what to do to help you, then that would probably be less of a problematic situation than this just like, oh, you have something
1: called bad blood. We're going to give you these sham treatments that were nothing. Right. And that's exactly what happened. Now. During this time, funding was suspended, but the researchers told the men that they were just being studied without any treatment. Now, at this point in time, they're still being studied, but they're not getting medical care, they're not getting hot meals, they're not getting that burial insurance that they were promised at the beginning of the studies. Right? They've lost all funding for the study.
0: So in Macon County, the health department offered a sort of last chance treatment for these people. But even then, this was just a lie. It was actually just a spinal tap for diagnostic purposes, which is, I mean, just the icing on the cake here that it's like you're going to get a spinal tap, which I'm going to tell you again is a treatment, but isn't actually a treatment. It's just more observation and diagnosis. And like, who loves getting spinal taps? I mean, the movie is great, but yeah, actually getting a spinal tap is the worst. Maybe Rob Reiner. But otherwise, yeah, that sucks. Like you get a spinal tap and it's not even helping you. Like that super sucks.
1: Right. Further. So now you got, we kind of gave you the cake. There's the icing on the cake. And now here's all the sprinkles too. None of the men were told that they were infected and none were provided penicillin. So we're talking 600 men that were exposed to this, that had this, that were not getting treatment. We're talking a a large group of people that were literally told that they weren't infected and literally told that they weren't going to get a treatment for it or never even received a viable treatment for it.
0: The revelation of the atrocities that occurred as part of this Tuskegee experiment led to breakthroughs in some of the ethics requirements, such as having informed consent and regulation of participation during clinical trials and studies.
1: You know, unfortunately, you saw similar studies like this in Guatemala, except they didn't last for 40 years. They lasted for two. Still bad, but they didn't last for nearly as long. And Doctors actually infected soldiers, prostitutes, prisoners, and mental patients with syphilis and other STDs. And there was some cooperation between Guatemala president and President Truman at the time. So you saw like some cross-country work on this particular type of research.
0: And to be clear, I want to make sure that we say this, they infected them. They caused them to get this disease to absorb it. So again, really horrible stuff. There were some historical and famous individuals who suffered from syphilis that are people you might know. So for example, there is Friedrich Nietzsche, the famous philosopher, Vladimir Lenin, the famous politician. Adolf Hitler, another famous dictator, Idi Amin, and Al Capone, and so you could say misery loves company.
1: Yeah, it's it's pretty rough stuff. So, kind of where we thought a good place to maybe like you know tie this up into a nice little package and and kind of send you away with some additional stuff would be this idea of kind of dispelling some myths because again we like kind of myth busting around this. Now, one of the things that we have to talk about is is syphilis is a thing of the past. That's something that people actually think it's like it's an old disease. It's like uh, like typhoid fever and all that stuff. Myth That's a myth And we're going to bust it So actually There has been a rise Every year Since 2001 So On the contrary When we talk about this You know what are Things of the past Pet rocks Vanilla ice Beanie babies Dubstep And soon to be Anti-vaxxers Or one can really hope
0: Indeed Another myth And we've sort of Touched on this But to make sure We're really clear There is a myth That syphilis Is a heterosexual disease Myth Myth Actually, as we've noticed, there's, this is pretty indiscriminate in terms of what your sexual preferences are. Syphilis does not care. Syphilis is an equal opportunity infector. The rise has been more attributed to same-sex relations between men, but this can also occur with women having sex with other women, and of course, men having sex with women and people having sex with people. And all that matters is that there is contact between lesions and that in certain forms of contact, the opportunities are therefore greater. So... You know what is a real heterosexual disease? Terrible rom-coms. Like Geely. And Jersey Girl. <laughs>
1: From Justin and <to> Kelly. <laughs> and the first half of Matthew McConaughey's
0: entire career. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I, we gotta say, just a real quick, I don't know if we said this up at the top, but thank you, Alan, for these notes. They're fantastic. Yeah,
0: he, he really peppered in some good jokes here, so I've been, I've been enjoying them.
1: <laughs> All right, number three, syphilis can't be spread through oral sex. Myth. Actually, you can get it through direct contact with a sore during any type of sex, be it vaginal or oral anal, or even at birth to a baby. So there are some things that you can't catch from oral sex that include anxiety, dyslexia, colorblindness, intelligence, or stupidity. So just stay in school. Very good point. I like all that. (laughs) Okay,
0: uh, another one. Number four myth is that syphilis is easily spotted, which is kind of funny because it does kind of create spots. (laughs) Myth. So people can be affected for a while and not even know it. The source can be hidden internally or in other less obvious places. And again, they're not particularly itchy. So it's like you may not be particularly attuned to the fact that you have it. Things that are easily spotted include mullets, unibrows, the moon, the sun, the fact that the earth is round and people who are picking their nose while driving in the car thinking that nobody can see them.
1: Yeah, your windows aren't that tinted, my friend. Sometimes not tinted at all. Or your windows are down. What are you doing? All right. Number five, syphilis is not dangerous. Myth. So it actually, it may not present symptoms early on. You might see that, but if it's left untreated, it can spread to the brain or nervous system and produce some really nasty consequences like blindness or nerve damage. So, but you know what's not dangerous? Driving sober, that's cool. Bubble baths are awesome. The Oxford comma, Snuggies flossing and staying away from Carol Baskin. Those things are not dangerous.
0: The Oxford comma in particular is a very safe bet. I highly recommend it.
1: (laughs) That's both of our recommendations for this episode.
0: Of that entire list, that's my... my, (laughs) Just kidding. Probably driving sober, but... Number six. The cures today can undo any damage from syphilis. Myth. Now, while it is relatively easier to treat these days, treatment does not necessarily undo any damage that has already been done by this disease. But there are some things that can be undone, such as the fire festival, the New York City subway... (laughs) The final season of Game of Thrones and the first <laughs> half of Matthew McConaughey's career. <laughs> A lot of effort involved in some of these, but you know we're we're not opposed to crossing hurdles if it's for the betterment of mankind.
1: They're worthy causes. All right, number seven. I've had to list, so I can't get it again. Myth. You absolutely 100% can. You can continue your own precious cycle of infection and penicillin all your life and see how that works out for you. The thing is, is that you can get it. You can get reinfected. You can actually reinfect partners, even though you've been treated for it. You don't develop an immunity to it.
0: But did you know that there
1: are some things that you can do once and never again? Yes, like lose your virginity, marry Carol Baskin, donate your brain to science, or fight Mike Tyson. There will never be a second fight with him.
0: Can't undo that. (laughs) All right, the final myth we're going to attack here is this idea that I'm not promiscuous, therefore I can't get syphilis. Myth. This is not true. As much as we would like to believe it, if you are sexually active at all, it is possible, even if you only have a single partner. The only true way is to avoid any contact with any humans ever. And then, particularly, to avoid contact sexually with people or with their lesions. So, you could be in a totally monogamous relationship with someone who is uninfected and even use protection correctly and still get it if you have contact with other lesions from somewhere else, or, you know, whatever it might be that as long as that disease makes it to you, you can get it. That is not to say that you were like, Well, I am only not promiscuous because I'm afraid I'm going to get syphilis. And now I found out that I can't get it from not being promiscuous. So I'm going to go out and just have my way with people. Still wouldn't recommend that. But there are things that if you're not promiscuous, you can't be in a love triangle. You can't be in a love square. You cannot be in a love decagon. (laughs) And you
1: also cannot relate at all to Tiger Woods. (laughs) Oh, snap. Hot takes. So now we just lost our sponsorship from Tiger Woods, too. And golf, generally. And golf in general.
0: (laughs) That was a wonderful trip. That was fun. Thank you, Alan, for, for that. And also, that was just fun. Okay. We've talked a bit about sort of the psychology of all of this, as well as how we talk about changing people's behavior and what's important there. So let's really dive into what we might call the behavioral perspective on this.
1: You know, with all these medical breakthroughs in the 1900s, there were several vaccines that were offered treatments, cures for these ailments and these things that have plagued humanity for centuries, but they've not been able to to eradicate the transmission of these diseases entirely. And mostly because a lot of times the way these persist is an issue of some kind of behavioral process or some kind of engagement in a particular behavior. Like we talked about engaging in a particular type of sex, right, or engaging in unprotected sex. All of that stuff is gonna get you, not all of it, but those are ways that you can contact that type of disease specifically.
0: Right. So the outcome, the reward of engaging in sexual acts should be fairly obvious. You know, Yeah, a lot of people do it and so are aware of the fact that there are some pros to to this, (laughs) at, at least in terms of maybe how it feels. Yeah. But anyway, the responsible behavior has never seemed to catch on in any culture to the point of really being able to totally prevent the spread of STDs, such as things like syphilis. But there are some things that we can consider that might inform some policies or education or other, I guess, systemic interventions to address this.
1: We have to understand kind of, at the end of the day, it's not a guarantee that if you have unprotected sex that you're going to contact the infection, right? So the threat of the infection itself is intermittent. So you may or may not get it. You're kind of always risking it every single time you engage in unprotected sex or this type of contact. And so you know, you might have had a lot of unprotected sex in your life and never contacted the disease. So it only takes one time to get it, but there's been multiple times where you haven't. And so what ends up happening is now, if I start trying to change my behavior and work towards more safe sex or some kind of sexual education, I might be more resistant to it simply because I've contacted more pros from not having been engaging in protected sex or in safe sex for that matter. So for example, think of it like this. I'm 34 years old. I've gone let's say 20 years with having engaged in unprotected sex and never contacted an STD. So I've got a 20 year learning history where I've gotten a lot of reinforcement, a lot of good things, never any bad things from it. So I'm probably less likely to change my pattern of behavior until something bad happens. Did you say 20 years? Close to it, yeah. Okay. <laughs>
0: Just doing my math real quick. Ooh. So some questions to, to also ask here is, is contacting the data sufficient to influence people to make different choices about this. So according to the World Health Organization, each year there are an estimated 376 million new infections with one of four STIs that are either chlamydia, gonorrhea, syphilis, or trichomoniasis. And those might be alarming, that maybe even seems a little bit overwhelming, and I think the short answer here is yes, providing people with that kind of information can influence some people to be more careful with their behavior it is not a guarantee, it is not a catch-all, and it will certainly not be sufficient to prevent further spread.
1: Right. And so what the WHO also suggests on top of that is that you want to provide some kind of proper education, counseling, and direction towards at-risk populations, specifically those populations that are more likely to contact the disease or less likely to engage in safe sex. So where behavior analysts can step in is they may be able to develop more strategic educational materials. They might be able to individualize more materials towards these certain populations or to make information more accessible. And that signal to the adverse consequences of that risky behavior and really treat things like syphilis and beyond and tailor it to unique at-risk populations and regions specifically. So that's where maybe we don't need advertisers. Maybe we need behavior analysts. <laughs> or both. Or both.
0: Yeah. And so... I think the useful thing to consider here is that we can turn to some of the other interventions for separate things that have actually worked fairly well, like needle exchange programs for people who are addicted to drugs that are injected via a needle. And that by having programs where there are clean needles available, you don't actually encourage people to use drugs, but you do prevent the spread of diseases by doing that. And looking at that is addressing, like, what is the motivation here? So understanding that there is motivation to engage in these sexual activities, we're not going to change that motivation. But what we can do is try and make it as safe as possible by providing resources for people to use so that they're being careful in the situations and much less likely to contact and spread diseases such as things like syphilis. Another one, I think, is putting in certain incentive systems for using those. So not just making them available, but also making it a bigger payoff to actually engage with and use those preventative and safe practice systems. So like examples could be things where, and I've seen this done with some drug treatment programs and I was actually thinking we needed to tackle treatment of addiction anyway. Yeah. But things where it's like, okay, the longer you go with abstinence from use of this drug, the greater the payoff is going to be. And if you reset, then you reset, it happens. But like, we don't want to treat any kind of relapse as the like we have to punish that or it's the end of the world. It's just okay, let's just get the system back in place and build it back up because you are you are learning a new habit and that's hard and so the same thing is I think useful here of it doesn't have to be complete abstinence doesn't have to be uh, complete one thing or another really it's just whatever is gonna happen, can we try and get the adherence to the safest possible practices and we provide some kind of reward for following those guidelines with check-ins. You know, we, you know, do tests and check-ins, that sort of thing. And if you're careful, then that reward increases over time. And if there's a relapse then we just reset and, you know, that if you're likely to engage in those safe practices, even if there's relapse periodically, the longer you go with those safe practices, the less likely you are to contact it. And so this really hits it at all angles is how do we address the motivation? How do we address the teaching, the appropriate behaviors that are likely to result in the safest possible outcome? And how do we incentivize those things so that people are willing to do this voluntarily and do it in their best interest? And so I think that's really just the main overview of how do we address and why would we even want to talk about this? You know, Partially is how this affects neurology, which is, I think, honestly, like we've sort of covered it, The big effect on neurology is like, it's bad for your brain. It can cause blindness. It can deteriorate your brain. It is not something you want to have happen. And what's, I think, particularly interesting is how do we address this from the angle of what do we do to try and reduce the spread of this disease? That's a mouthful. This whole episode was, huh? It was. All right. This will finish our discussion on syphilis for this two-parter here. I think it's been a while since we've had a two-parter. So we're back.
1: Yeah. It's been a little bit. Welcome. That's the nature of Alan's notes and Abraham and I just chatting away.
0: Exactly. We can turn anything into a two hour conversation if we want to. (laughs) All right, let's go ahead and hit our main take home points for the overview of this entire discussion. So I think first that syphilis has transformed over the last 500 or so years from a sort of common misfortune to a treatable STD. But over the last 20 years, it has been creeping back into existence. From things like changing sexual habits to more globalization, and also there seems to be a reduced concern for the severity of this disease and a little bit of... cavalier attitude toward getting infected. So something that we can address again, sort of at the behavioral level.
1: Right. And I think that with that being said, the idea that people are just kind of shrugging it off, you should not be taking this lightly. Like it is treatable. You can get through it and that's okay. But if it's left untreated and this is really where it gets to be a problem is if it's left untreated, then you can really deal with some serious, severe, irreparable damage to the body, including the brain.
0: And like any STD, this is preventable through responsible sexual behavior, but this does continue to be difficult to achieve across many cultures. And again, this is just a good opportunity to to say, like, this is where I think that we have an opportunity to shine in the psychology world is how can we contribute to putting in interventions to influence people to voluntarily make appropriate changes to their behavior so that they can be safe. Right, exactly. The main thing is just have safe sex. Definitely. That's definitely the take home point of of everything is just have safe sex. Not like if you're going to have sex, be safe, but definitely have sex and be safe about it.
1: Yeah. 100%.
0: (laughs) (laughs) If you're of an age where you can consent to that sort of thing, an age and sound of mind and that sort of thing. Yes, exactly. All right. Shall we take on some recommendations? Let's do it. Okay, so this is pretty late because this has been out for a while, but my recommendation is the TV show Space Force on Netflix, (laughs) and I think there's plenty to, there are things that people may not like about it. I will definitely warn, like, there's a lot of explicit language in the show, but for the most part, I think the comedy is really good. There's a lot of deadpan in there. There's a lot of, like, really subtle digs at contemporary political figures and that sort of thing. And it's just, it's got some really great comedic moments in it. And one of them actually, that makes me chuckle endlessly. As a matter of fact, it was so funny. I had to go back and rewatch it so I could laugh a second time. But there was a joke about it. <laughs> Have you ever seen in a lot of these shows where when they're looking at some kind of footage of something, they do like this zoom in and that enhances the photo? Yeah. They do a really good joke about this and I don't want to spoil the joke, but just suffice it to say that they handled it very very well in a very clever way <laughs> and so that's my
1: recommendation to Space Force on Netflix all right sounds good I like that so I've been meaning to check that out it's been on my list for a little bit and I just haven't had a chance to all right so my recommendation this week is a book um, by Don DeLillo if you've not read Don DeLillo he is most famous for his book named White Noise and that talks about a town that begins to evacuate and a family that's going through the situation where there is what's called an airborne toxic event and it's a dangerous poison cloud that's that's enveloping the town so it's kind of a cool story it sounds like it's pretty simple but the way he writes is really descriptive and really insightful so i'm currently reading his book called point omega which is currently about a filmmaker who is in the middle of california in the desert who is interviewing a former military intelligence operative and the entire story is just him spending time in this cabin with this guy. And it's super introspective. There's only three characters in the entire book so far. And it's just written really well. It feels very existential. And just it's just a really interesting quick read. It's like maybe 120 pages too. So it's a nice short one. Huh.
0: Isn't there yeah. like some indie band called Airborne Toxic Event? Yes, there is. Okay. I thought so. I was like, that sounds really familiar. Yeah, that's where they got their name from. Oh, okay, great. Good to know. Okay. Do you have anything else on syphilis, Shane? Not today. Okay. We're all done with syphilis. We're cured. (laughs) If you have syphilis or you know someone who does or you'd like to share your experiences with that, feel free to contact us. If you have anything to say about the Tuskegee experiments or anything that we talked about, any of the clever jokes that we made about some of the myths, then we're certainly happy to hear those. And if you would like to leave a comment or rate or review these episodes, you can do so anywhere that you find these episodes. And we try to respond to most things. You can reach us on social media at www.wwdpodcast.com. The info part is for our our email, which um, uh, we're happy to respond to emails. We've actually been getting quite a few more lately. The board games episode generated quite a few emails more than we usually get, which is really fun for me because I was... (laughs) <laughs> Very happy to talk about those, but yeah, so you can support us by doing that. And we look forward to hearing from everybody. And I think that is all we have. So this is Abraham and this is Shane. We are
1: out. See ya.
2: You've been listening to why we do what we do. Why we do what we do is supported in part by our amazing patrons. Thank you. If you like what you heard, consider becoming a patron by heading to patreon.com slash WWD you can also rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts or share this episode with your friends. If you have any comments or questions, we'd love to hear from you. Find us at www.podcast on your favorite social media platforms. You can learn more about this and other episodes by going to www.podcast.com. There, you'll find links as well as detailed and shareable show notes. Why We Do What We Do is researched and produced by Abraham, Ryan O, Shane, and Miranda. Artwork and logo design by Andrew Pollock at nogdesigns.com. Video and production assistance from Tyler Brassier with music courtesy of Justin Greenhouse. Thanks for listening, and we hope you have an awesome day.